Well, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines and spiritual disciplines these last five weeks or so. Uh, they're activities. They're tools that once you enter into them, uh, God kind of uses to make us different sort of people. We all want to be different people. We all want to be better people. The tools themselves don't save you, but it's kind of like throwing yourself in the path of grace. It's like, remember little Zacchaeus who couldn't see Jesus as he was walking through town and he climbed the tree he just, and he's hanging over the edge because he, just, he had to throw himself in the way of, of Jesus to see him. And when we use the tools, when we use these activities, the spiritual disciplines, it's kind of like what we're doing. We're throwing ourselves in the path that God's grace can work. Now, today we consider a tool that perhaps <laughs> I think is the most foreign to our natural thinking. The rest of the stuff, meditation, prayer, fasting, eh, maybe a little bit. But you know, today we're talking about simplicity. Simplicity. Now, when I say simplicity, I know a lot of people are thinking that the message is going to be like, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, who, who, who thought he, you know, he was from a wealthy family, and he heard God call him, give it all away, go serve the lepers, go serve the poor, uh, live amongst the poor. And, you know, a lot of people, when they think about simplicity, they're thinking it's about that. Now, listen, if God calls you to do that, I am not standing in your way. I mean, we'll, we'll even support you. We'll come out and help you, whatever, whatever you're doing. But that's not what this message is about. We live in what I would consider complicated times. Our lives are absolutely cluttered with things, well, you tell me, yes or no, things that we must do, things or people that we must see, things that we got to have, appointments that got to be kept, even vacation. Some of you are ba already back from vacation and did you say to anybody, have you ever heard this, either by you or somebody else, I need a vacation from my vacation. Did you, ever, did you ever say that? Which means, you know, the thing that you went, you, you wanted rest and relaxation and get renewed, that didn't happen on vacation. That's, that's the kind of world we live in right now. Modern life is anything but simple. Far from scaling back, there's a constant drumbeat to add just one more thing. In fact, a good life is often characterized by how full and how busy and how complicated our lives are. I mean, you know, did you ever, were you ever sitting in your backyard in a lawn chair and you worked all day and you're looking out and maybe you're looking at trees and you're listening to the birds and you're watching the squirrel and the little chipmunks and running around and things are happening and you feel guilty? Did you, 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 you it's like, I shouldn't be doing this. I, I got a whole list of things that I should be doing. We can't even do that anymore. Because life is so complicated. But the more we add, the more we get, the tighter wound we become. Keep it simple has never been more out of favor in my lifetime than it is right now. It's not that we don't like the idea of simplicity, because we do. We just like our choices more. And it's even, it's, you know what? It's even more than, than we like our choices. Uh, you know, somebody finds you on Facebook. You haven't seen them in 20 years. They find you, and you find out they live two towns away. You had no idea. So now, partly out of obligation, partly out of, you know, curiosity. You know, I think, I think I'll look better than him or something like that. You know, you, you get together with that person, but it's another thing to do. You, it's, these things pile up. And, and, and you know what? It just, it just makes us makes us crazy. And as our wealth and as our obligations increase, we begin a slow, steady meltdown. 
And we wake up one day and realize that our choices have wreaked havoc on our souls. So how do you... I'm, I'm assuming that some of you at least are, are agreeing with what I'm saying. Are you agreeing a little bit, some of you? Okay, all right, I saw some heads going up and down. Okay, how do, how do you get off this soul-destroying, soul-wrecking merry-go-round? What do you got to do? Well, in 1991, there was a, mood, a movie by the name of City Slickers. Do you ever see City Slickers? You know, Billy Crystal plays Mitch Robbins. He's an unhappy Manhattan, what used to be called yuppie, young urban professional. You know, the kind of people back then that you hated. Uh, he, he plays one of these, and he's on the verge of 40, and uh, he's kind of reached a crisis point in his life. He's kind of a lower-level, you know, radio broadcaster, and uh, the job is kind of passing him by, and he's frustrated at, at, at the rate that the years seem to be passing him, and he senses that his life has been a complete failure. And his two friends, Phil and Ed, uh, they buy him a two-week vacation for his birthday. This is not an ordinary vacation, by the way. It's two weeks driving cattle across the Wild West, just like in the movies, just like in the good old days. You know, yeah, right, right across uh, a state. And in one scene, they're driving this cattle, and in one scene, Mitch is slowly riding uh, with the lead cowboy, a guy by the name of Curly, played by Jack Palance, one of my favorite actors. And as they make small talk, Curly's got the cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth. He's got this leathery skin all baked under the sun under a black cowboy hat. He talks about the joy that a cowboy has in bringing in the herd. And Billy Crystal looks at him and he says, you know what? That is great. Life makes sense to you. And Curly laughs. And uh, Mitch, you know, Billy Crystal, Mitch looks at him and he says, "Uh, what's so funny? And Palance goes, you folk, you worry about a lot of stuff. How old are you? But before he can answer, he points a finger at him, and he says, 38. And Mitch goes, 39. Then Curly morphs. He morphs into a bit of cowboy philosophy, which actually is quite profound. And he says this. He says, you all come up here about the same age, same problems. You spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then you think two weeks up here is enough time for you. None of you get it. Suddenly, Curly stops his horse, and Mitch looks him in the eye. And he says to him, do you know what the secret of life is? And Mitch looks at him, and he goes, no, what? And Curly holds up his finger, and he says, your finger? He goes, no, no. One thing, just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean nothing. And Mitch ponders that for a second, and he says, well, that's great, but what's the one thing? And Curly looks at him, and he says, that's what you've got to figure out. Torn between his scattered life of family obligations, a desire for career advancement, his need for security, his appetite for excitement, He is a desperately divided man. He is about many things, so he senses he's about nothing. What often escapes us is how affected we are by our culture's fractured and fragmented state. One person wrote this, We are lost in a maze of competing attachments. One moment we make decisions on the basis of sound reason, and the next moment out of fear of what others will think of us. 
We have no unity or focus around which our lives are oriented. Soren Kierkegaard saw double-mindedness as the essential disease of the human spirit. He wrote that the antidote for this disease is, in the title of one of his books, Purity in Heart. And the definition he gave for purity was, guess what? To will one thing. Curly knew that all along. The Apostle James said, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The simplicity that they both were talking about was to will one thing. And when we do, there is a freedom and there is a joy and there's sort of a balance in life and we escape the bondage and the anxiety and the fear that duplicity brings. Now, I want to look at three things in relation to simplicity and the time we have this morning. I want to look at, one, the call to simplicity. Secondly, the competition to simplicity. We have a lot of competition, but mainly one thing. And then the comfort in simplicity. Well, first, the call to simplicity. Life becomes much more simple when we decide once and for all that one thing will matter in our life. Jesus said it. He said it, you know, Bob Carpenter just read that whole long series in the Sermon on the Mount, and it was that one verse that really summed it all up in verse 33. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Here is the one thing, expanding his rule both in the world and in our lives, extending the kingdom of God, extending the rule, the reign of, of God in our individual lives, and then letting him use us to extend the kingdom out there. See, that's it. That's the one thing. If I could hold up my finger, I'd say, you got to find out. I'm giving you the answer right now. Jesus gave us the answer. We have been in this series on spiritual disciplines for you know, about five weeks now, and I had someone, a brave soul, ask me last week, not last Sunday, but during the week. They said, why are we doing this series on spiritual disciplines? You know, I always wonder, somebody, some brave person in the back, standing up in the middle of one of my sermons and going, uh, what does that mean you just said? I have no idea what you just said. You know, this is not the place for it. Obviously, Please don't do that. Uh, so this is not the place for it. Life groups that Matt was talking about at the very beginning of the service, that's the place for it. That's what we do. That's just not, this is not the form for it. But, but if, if someone could, I bet you a lot of times they would. So, so this person came up and said, why are we even doing this series? And I thought about it, and I great, great question. I think the chief reason is that there's a lack of understanding why Jesus Christ died for us. There is a lack among Christians even. There is a lack of understanding as, as to why Christ died for our sins. We all know the first part, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. His death was a death on our behalf. What's the first verse you ever learned when you went to Sunday school and you were five years old? John 3.16. And it says... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life in the King James. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like one who, who lunges at the last second 
and pushes the baby carriage out of the way from this out-of-control car, saving the baby but losing her life in the process. See, that's kind of, that's what substitutionary death means. But it wasn't just physical death that he saved us from, but the Bible says he, he, he put himself in our place to save us from eternal death. We can choose to trust Jesus' payment for our sin, Well, the Bible says we could choose to pay or try to pay for our sins ourselves. But we got to remember, if you don't make the grade, and apart from Christ, you can't, Jesus warns us about an eternal place of torment called hell. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. We will, when we close our eyes in death, get what we always wanted in this life. And I got to tell you something, though. There's nothing more fair than that. But listen, and we all kind of, we all get the substitutionary death part. I think, if you've been around here at all, if you were raised in church, you know, you don't even have to come to this church. You know, most Christian churches got the substitutionary death part kind of right. But Jesus Christ didn't come and die for our sins just to pardon us. Because if you love someone, you don't want to see them remain flawed and broken and doing stupid things and harming themselves and harming the whole family and everybody else. You want to see them get better. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter says that Christ died not only to save us from eternal judgment, but to enable us to live different lives. When the word of the cross breaks into our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we awaken to the fact that God loved us so much that he he takes the life of his own son in order to bring us under his care, under his protection, under his provision, under his guidance. At that moment, when that breaks upon our consciousness, when it goes the 18 inches from our brain to our heart, and we, we, we understand that and we embrace that, we embrace the blood of Christ that was shed for us, we begin to die to the lies of sin and to the power of sin's deceit, which is always trying to persuade us that, you know, a better future uh, can be had through sin and not through righteousness, by living the way we want to live. Listen, the call, as far as simplicity, the call is simple. When we seek to expand God's rule in our lives and in the world, we are living the simple life. The simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives above everything else. It is one. What about the competition? What's the competition to simplicity? <laughs> this was a tough one to try to you know, bring down, so I figured I might as well just follow the text. Uh, you know what? When you're not sure, just follow the Bible and probably it'll lead you to the truth anyway, right? What did Jesus say? The entire second half of Matthew 6 is about a form of deceit which perhaps more than any other is taking us far away from Jesus' words of seeking his rule in our lives and his rule in the world. It's the deceit of riches. You know, our vision is uh, 
Our vision is very, very important. Um, those who have lost their vision, their eyesight, uh, it is, it's a profound handicap. It, it really is. You, you need to do life differently if you lose your, your eyesight. You know, my dad in the last couple of years of his life was really, uh, he was really lose, losing his eyesight, and he had to sit right up, you know, you know right up to the television, you know, a couple feet, and, and, uh, uh, and it was just hard. I mean, life, life was just more, life's more difficult when you cannot see. Um, they find new ways of doing things. Life's a struggle on a lot of levels because of sin for, look, because of sin, everyone has, has struggles. We understand that. But for those who have lost their eyesight, it's, it's just a little bit difficult, more difficult still. And Jesus said in verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, which it is. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know what he's saying? Our eyes resemble lamps that illuminate the inside of us. They, they take in light so that we can move about the room. You know, later we'll turn, turn the lights where everybody moves out. They move into the sunshine. If your eye isn't working, though, your whole body, in a sense, is in darkness. It changes everything. The whole room could be flooded with 50,000 watts of light. But if the receptors are not receiving the light, it doesn't matter how many lights you have above your head. You're, it's not going to help you one bit you will still be stumbling around. Jesus seemed to be saying that a, a major barrier to simplicity that kind of brings the easy yoke, could never bring the easy yoke that he promised, seems to be our psychotic attachment to things. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story of a man who was filled with the desire for more and more and more, and planning his security for the future absolutely consumed him. It clouded his vision, but in the end he died, and he handed everything off. To someone else. When we are materialistic, when we have an inordinate desire or dependence on material things, they seem, Jesus said, they seem to have a blinding effect on us. It distorts how we see until we get to the point that we have no idea that we even have a problem. Little by little, you say, well, gee, I wonder if I should be doing that. Well, soon it's like, well, everybody should be doing, and like, they should all be living like I'm living. We don't even, it, it blinds us to the fact, to the, to the uh, we finally get to the point where we, we don't even see it anymore. It's, it's there, maybe other people see it, but we can't see it ourselves. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, if you have an inordinate love for money, I will bet that there's not five people in this auditorium, not five people in this auditorium who would raise their hands. Now, it could be that we have very few greedy people at the Crossing Church this morning. Or, or it may be that we have an inordinate number of people who have a problem seeing, but they don't know it. The reason for that is because materialism is so sneaky. It's like a thief. It's so sneaky. Think of it. When you, look, if you commit adultery, you, you, you know you commit adultery. You know. You, you don't wake up and say, you're not my wife. How did you get here? That, you know, stuff like that doesn't happen. Okay? But an inappropriate relationship with things hides itself. That's why Jesus said, watch out for it. It has a blinding effect on us. And he's speaking to his disciples. 
He's not speaking to the low lives of the community. He's speaking to the guys around him. He knows that they can be blinded. I've had many people say to me, yeah, I, I have a problem with money. I don't make enough of it. Nobody, nobody thinks they're making enough. They're, 99% of the people I've ever talked to said, you know, they're not paying me what I'm worth. Nobody, nobody's been paid for what, for what they're worth. But few will ever even consider the possibility that they have been captured by it. Rich people are materialistic. Fortune 500 companies are greedy. Not me. My brother is insatiable. Our neighbor is always grasping for more. She's materialistic. She can't get enough. I have many problems, but this is not one of them. See, that's what most people would say. Now, maybe they don't have a problem. Honestly, maybe they do not have a problem. But all you have to do is compare yourself with someone who is unmistakably materialistic that 100 people out of 100 people would say, oh, forget it. You know, this one over here? Oh, gosh, you got to be kidding me. Okay, all you need to do is compare yourself to one person who's highly, unmistakably materialistic to come to the conclusion that you are not. Because that's what we do. That's always what we do. You know, maybe you're not. Or maybe your eyes have been blinded to the truth. It may have you. It may have you in, your, in its power. And if it has you in its power, there ain't no way you're going to live the simple life. Impossible. Materialism, Jesus believed, was a chief opponent of simplicity. And it has the power, because you think about it. It has, the, it, it has such great power. It has a power. Listen, listen to what materialism does. It has the power to let you accept a job that you pretty much know you're not great at or that helps anyone, but that makes a lot of money. You know what? Uh, think of the complications involved in a choice like that, uh, where it puts you. Maybe your additional income gives you certain status, and maybe it'll keep you also from asking questions if the business is doing questionable things. It, it, it may keep you from asking hard questions about your lifestyle. Hard questions like, do I really need to spend as much money as I do on this? Do I need to be putting this much money into the apartment? Do I need to be spending this much money on clothes? Immediately you think of people who spend much more. So we don't ask questions. We don't even think about it. You don't say, aren't there ways I could be giving more money to the church, to the poor, to my friends, to neighbors in need who are truly in need? Aren't there ways I could be more radically generous if I made this and that and that change in my life? You don't want to ask those questions. You don't even want to think about those questions. Add a car, and now you're adding additional expenses and problems. You know, you need insurance. You need money for maintenance. You need to work a bit more, so you put a few more hours. Add another car. That doubles the equation. If you're a homeowner, if you're a homeowner, is there ever... Not something to do. Has there ever been a time, uh, you know, do you ever sit in there and say, well, unless the boiler blows up, you know, I, we have nothing to do. Of course not. There's always something to do. This, you know, this needs to be fixed. And, you know, he's been asking you about this. And when are we going to do this? And we want to change the call. And we got blah, 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 everything like, right? It goes on and on and on. We are happy we are contented. We are at peace. The closer we can get to 
the simple life and the yoke that Christ has called us to put on ourselves. But we are far, far, far most of the time from it. We have the reward of living a life that our parents didn't have and our grandparents would only dream of. We have the reward of a life filled with obligations that we have fallen victim to and things, always more things. Richard Foster wrote that since so many do not have what he called a divine center, that our need for security, our, our passion for security, has led us into an absolutely insane attachment to things. He wrote this, We really must understand that the lust of affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. Psychotic. We have, he's saying, lost touch many times with reality. We've lost touch with, with reality. I mean, um, really, th- think about these two scenarios. Uh, which is the American hero? Okay, one and two. Who's the American hero? The boy or girl who was poor and purposefully, purposefully strategically becomes rich. Or the rich boy or girl who strategically becomes poor. Which one? What do you think? Which one? Um, I I know who it is. (laughs) I know who the American dream is built around. Okay? Um, It's around around the rich person. Um, And yet Jesus said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How many, listen, how many people do you know that choose a lower lifestyle or a lower life station so that others could be raised up a bit? Not many. Not many. Covetedness, we call ambition. Hoarding, we call prudence. Greed, we call industry. Let me ask you this. Who are you accountable to? Are you accountable to anybody? What Christians have you ever gotten together with and said, let's talk about how we're spending our money? Let's both of us. Let's just talk about how we're spending our money on ourselves, on others, how much we're giving away, how much we're keeping, what we're doing. Do we ever do that? That's what the body of Christ is for. Iron sharpens iron. But this is one rough edge that nobody even wants to bring up doesn't even want to talk about. Because, folks, listen, let me just tell you this. Just take my word for it. You can't trust yourself when we're talking about this stuff. You can't trust yourself. Decide to bring other people in. I, I, I don't know. Look, I know, well, I should say, I know we uh, don't know what to think about this sometimes. We don't know how we spend our money. We, we really don't want to sit down and think about it because we're going to end up saying, did I really do that? I don't want to talk to other people about it. I don't even want to talk to myself about it. I just want to do it. That's Jesus' whole point about being captured by things which desperately complicate our lives and eliminate us from from simplicity and the simple life. Money has power to keep us from asking questions about how we spend our money, how we make our money, and pretty soon it warps us and we lose sight of what is truly important. Jesus seemed to think that the greatest competition to the single-mindedness which simplifies and brings peace is materialism. That's not me. That's him. That's what he said. Last. The competition and now the comfort. 
the comfort of simplicity. There's nothing that so challenges the direction of today's world where there is a mad dash, true or not true, to find security and, and, you know, and provide and plan you know, for the future. But this stuff makes us sick. We get so caught up in it. I was going to, I cut a whole section of the message out, which you'll probably be glad I did. But you can Google this. You could be Google this. Uh, I, I just went on and started doing some study yesterday about the, the physical ailments that come from what we're going to talk about right now, from worry, from, from, not worrying, from not knowing about the future, from not sure if we're secure, not sure if we have enough. The, the, it, there is a laundry list of physical ailments that many of us suffer from because of our worry. Don't you find it interesting that in Matthew chapter 6, just a few verses after Jesus teaches his disciples about taking care not to be captured by things, he goes into an extensive teaching on worry? What do you think? You know why he did it? Because Jesus knew that most people, no matter what they said publicly, privately, perhaps in the deep recesses of their minds, trusted in money and trusted in things to keep their family secure and to safeguard their future. And if we continue doing that, it will lead to a worry-filled life. You know as well as I do, most people's worry list is as long as their arm. And, and, and so many of those things cause us to lay awake at night. And, you know, it's, you, I, I was thinking about it this week. How many of those things that have us staring at the ceiling are money-related? How in the world could they be thinking about having a baby? They barely can take care of themselves. What, what are we going to do if the stock market takes a hit and a, has a major correction? What about my retirement? It's finally recovering. What if a massive hit comes? What if the house doesn't sell? What if my insurance, which stinks, you know, what if they don't approve of the treatments? What if they cancel me? I can't believe that they let me go. Who's going to hire me now? What if the landlord sells the house? What if Junior gets lost driving? We should have gotten the GPS that was included in the deluxe package that we got when we bought that car. Have you ever noticed how many of our worries are connected with money? And we say in our minds, more money would solve this problem. It would give me control, and if I have more control, I don't need to worry like this. Have you ever said that to yourself? I have. The answer is not money. The answer is faith in the one who said, I will take care of you. And he kind of, you know what Jesus does then in the last section there? He pulls apart he logically blows away all the reasons why his disciples and, and people worry. First, he says, like in verse 25, there's no, he says, number one, there's no need to worry. There's really no need to worry. He argues the needless, needlessness of worry from creation. He says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? See, his argument goes like this. If God gave us the greater thing, life, he created our bodies, isn't he going to give us the lesser things, like food, like clothing, to keep us warm, to sustain us? Why would he go halfway? Why would he create us and then not giving, give us the things to sustain it? 
If he did the big thing and gave you life, we have every reason and every expectation that he will do the lesser thing and sustain life as long as he pleases. What takes more work, to knit together a human body or to knit together a sweater? What do you think? How did the big, you know, how, why would he do the big thing and we think that, you know what, the little thing is too hard for him? That, well, you know what, we're not sure about that. Providing shelter, uh, the, you know, house, when you get the car, you, we just, I don't know if he can do that. What, are we crazy? He says, you know what, there's no need to worry. One of the problems, of course, is we have believed the lie that says life is fashion. Life and cuisine, that's, that's really life. We've been told so long from Madison Avenue that we are what we eat, we are what we drink, we are what we wear. The godless trinity, you know, I call them. That we are not sure when Jesus says that life is more than those things, whether he's telling us the truth or not. You know, we're not sure. Maybe, maybe not. See, one of the problems that we have is that we are so knee-deep in thinking about and running after stuff that we think life is stuff. The simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives. Above everything else, it is the one thing. Then he says, there's no sense in worrying. He said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Did you ever see birds? Man, they're always moving, birds, aren't they? They're always pecking. They're always, you know, they're always doing something. They're feathering the nest. We had a nest built right near our front door, a little overhang, and we watched, uh, you know, them do the nest and have the baby and, and you know, the whole thing. Uh, and, and they're just very industrious. You know, they're scratching the earth. You know, our Heavenly Father doesn't come along and drop a, a worm into their little beaks. He's, he started a mechanism, you know, going where they scratch at the earth, and they feed kind of themselves. He's not against farming. He's not against farmers. He's not against storing away for the winter. He simply wanted them to know that if he has put into place a mechanism by which even the birds, which have no capacity to store in barns or to harness the elements for their benefit, if, if he put in, in play a mechanism where they are fed, how much more will he provide for you? That's what he's saying. God said that he has put into effect a mechanism by which the birds of the air are cared for. And he's given them little bird brains. That's all they have. We have much bigger brains. We don't have to peck. We know how to build. We can build. He, he, he's given it to us on this grand scale. He has given us minds to figure and to observe and to prepare. Birds have no clue how to, how to build a barn or how to refrigerate something or freeze-dried provisions to store away for spring. They don't know how to build a split-level four-bedroom hab habitat with electrical lights and running water, but they make it, don't they? If God is the great creator and sustainer, has set in motion in order to feed the birds, he's saying to his disciples, do you suspect that maybe he's done the same for you? In fact, to think other words or otherwise is senseless. The simple life is seeking God's rule in our life above everything else. And when we do, he will provide and we will see how senseless it is to worry about these things. Then he says, there's no use in worry. He's in verse 27. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? You already know this. Worry doesn't change things. 
right? I, it really does. You sit there and you say, if I worry a lot, if I get a lot of sweat, if I really sweat through, you know, the shirt, you know, maybe, you know, something good will happen. That, that never happens. It doesn't change anything. And yet there's so many people who seem to take worry to a new level, like an art form. They worry about everything. You name the situation, they have a worry attached. They welcome the arrival of children into their household. But now they're so worried that they're going to get sick or that, you know, they'll be walking along the street and some drunk driver's going to come barreling down the street. And they're overjoyed at becoming grandparents. Now they have to think about the latest childhood disease going around and so on and so on and so on. But the simple fact is that all their worry doesn't help themselves or their kids or their grandkids. Jesus said it's useless. It doesn't add a single day to their lives. It's non-productive. I wish corporate America would understand that. If corporate America could get the word that worry is useless, you can't make money or do anything with it, we'd figure out a way to eliminate worry. I'm positive. We, you know, in, in, in less than a generation, we'd figure out a way to end worry because it's non-productive. It's not logical. It has nothing to do with logical. It's not a logical battle we fight when we worry. It is a spiritual one. It is a heart issue. And we all understand it. And we've all experienced it. The way we look at life has a lot to do with how much we worry. If our hearts are inclined towards temporal things like clothes and careers and bank accounts and how we look in the mirror, then you know what? There's a lot to worry about. There's a lot to worry about. There are moths that lead holes in cashmere sweaters. There are rumors of war which make the stock market tumble. tumble. There are wrinkles which steal our beauty. All of us who are occupied with the here and now have a tremendous amount to worry about. But if we focus on God, see, this is what Jesus was saying. Hey, he's looking at his disciples and he, and, he, and he loves them. He wants them to have the good life. He wants the life that they always dreamed about and he knew that would have to be the simple life and he knew that they would have to make a decision about one thing the one thing that was most important. And he knew that if they focused on God and his will and his kingdom, that their hearts would be at rest and they would see that worry is useless because the simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives above everything else. Quickly, there's also no faith in worry. No faith. He said in verse 28, why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus was talking about common field flowers, you know, red poppies, stuff like that. You know, uh, a little while back, I went to, you know, ShopRite, and, you know, they sell, they sell the things there. I think I paid 14 bucks. But then I'm driving on 280. They got the same stinking flowers on the side of the road. I said I should have just stopped on the side of the road and picked them and wrapped them up a little bit and saved 15 bucks, right? It's the a, it's a common flowers. That's what he used to, And they used to take them and dry them out, and they used to start fires with them. You know, that's how they started their, their, their ovens and stuff like that. Uh, the story, life story of a poppy flower is a very short book. That would be a very short book. But you know what? People are forever. And if we are people who belong to him, we are a special value to him. Special value. Here's the point Jesus was trying to make. If God clothes the passing flowers with such amazing beauty, 
Surely we can expect that he's going to close his own children, made in his own image with at least an ordinary wardrobe, wouldn't you think? But our faith is little. It's weak. It's insufficient. We firmly believe that God's going to get us to heaven, but we have no faith that he'll get us through the next 24 hours. And when we incessantly worry, we show more about our faith than we care to. We begin acting like the pagans. He says in verse 34, the pagans run after these things. The pagan gods were, were horrible. They played games with people. They didn't love the people. They, made, they tortured their lives. And he says, you know what? When you do that, when you have no faith in me, you're comparing me to the pagan gods. How, how dare you? Do you realize how hurtful that is? Did you compare me with Zeus? When we worry, we testify to the fact that we cannot trust our God. This is a word to everybody here. It's a word to me. Someone said, you know, Pastor Tim, sometimes when you preach, someone said this to me last week, I feel like you're speaking to me. I said, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to me. That's why it's passionate. It's not hard for me to be passionate when I'm preaching to myself. We understand that. We know how often we are faithless. And then he says, worry denies our family ties. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, these things. God as our Father will do no less for us than any good earthly father would do for his children. It's really a monumental designation that we call him Father. For in that title, Jesus was saying that the heart of the universe is not only ultimate power, but ultimate love and ultimate concern. We're part of the family of God. God is committed to his children. He's committed to their needs. And like any good father on earth, you know, it, it, that does not mean that he runs to provide us with everything that we ask for, things that could hurt us, things that could ruin us down the road, even if we sometimes confuse needs with luxuries, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. God is a wise father. He does what is right by his children. If we believe this, there is absolutely no reason to worry. We can continue to worry about everything that we need or decide instead to fasten ourselves onto his kingdom and trust in him to give us what we need. See, the simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives and for everybody else. That's the simple life. And then he summed it up in verse 34. He said, therefore, therefore, because of everything I've just said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. One of the most difficult things for us to do is to live one day at a time. Isn't that true? Do you know all our worries are about the future? They're all about the future. They're all about what if, if what if this doesn't, what if she doesn't, what if he doesn't, what that? It, it's, always, it's always about the future. Helmetilica said that we are prone to, quote, wandering in times, not our own. Wandering in times, not our own. When we do that, we end up spoiling our entire life. God has divided time into these little bite-sized chunks. Have you heard about them? They're called days. They're 24 hours long. And when we try to chew on more than one at a time, we end up choking. At least I do. When you think of it, we're seldom destroyed by what happens on any given Tuesday morning. We're almost never destroyed by what's going to happen this coming Thursday. A single day almost never makes the, you know, the difference that's going to destroy us. 
God is committed to provide for his children for today. And when we get to tomorrow, he has promised to provide us for tomorrow. And when we get to next Thursday, he's promised to provide us for next Thursday. But when we get to those days, right now, he's going to provide. It's Sunday. God's providing for you today. When he, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, give us, pray this, give us this day our daily bread. No request is too small. He's concerned with the little things of our lives. We can depend on him for them. He is all we need. All right, I'm done. God's kingdom is led by a good king who provides everything that we need. See, that was Jesus' message Simplicity begins with having your center changed. It's desiring one thing. See, the simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives above everything else. And when that inner reality begins to grip us, uh, there will inevitably be those outward expressions for change that is you know, happening Inside, there's an outward expression of an inward change. That's going to happen. I know that. The telltale signs of liberation and the joyful unconcerns for things that before kept you up at night will begin to disappear. Oh, things that, that used to have you staring at the ceiling, they start to begin to change and go away. When we talk about the spiritual discipline of simplicity, we are talking about pursuing one thing. It is seeking his kingdom and his righteousness in our lives and in the lives of others. And when that begins to happen, everything falls into its proper place. Everything falls into line, down the line, and God will generously, mercifully provide for everything that we need. Jesus Christ, he went to the cross to pay for our biggest needs. Our biggest need is not food. Our biggest need was not clothes. Our biggest need was not housing. You know what our biggest need was? Our biggest need was holiness. Our biggest need was that somehow a way would be opened in the chasm that was between us, sinful men and women, and holy God. And Jesus Christ stretched himself out, and that is the bridge, that is the crossing that we take to reach the Father. The death, the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. He's provided all that we need for the eternal, for the temporal, we need to start trusting him for them both. The simple life is seeking God's rule in our lives above everything else. It is the one thing.